think about humanizing leaders a little bit more. I think that's what this class is kind of mm-hmm. showing us is that while we're improving leadership skills, we're also proving to each other that not all leaders are just, you know, authoritarian. Yeah. Leaders. The voice you just heard was one of my students from this past semester. Did she just say students? Sure did. This past year, I started teaching at Temple University, so I'll always be MG the venue specialist and really enjoying my role as Professor MG. As a project for my leadership and organizations class, the students paired up to record a short podcast about what they've enjoyed and learned in class so far, incorporating the role of emotional intelligence in their lives. With the students' permission to use their project for this season, I've broken each recording into bite-sized clips. This week, I'm joined by my friends Alyssa and Nicole. We'll listen to the clips and carry on the conversation started by Danny and Armand. If you're looking to gain insight into disability inclusion work and asynchronous communication, you're in the right place. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the following episode, Humanizing Leadership 306. Don't be late to class. Class is in session. I'm Professor MG, and I'm joined today by my two dear friends, Nicole and Alyssa. How are y'all doing today? Great. Thanks for having us. So excited to have y'all here. So um, I already gave them a heads up that I would be sharing with the listeners today how the three of us met. So in 2006, we all showed up in Bonn, Germany for orientation for the Fulbright program, where we were going to be English teaching assistants um, spread out at different schools throughout Germany. And they happened to be my next door neighbors at orientation. So we didn't meet right away, but, um, you know, that classic kind of, you know, freshman year type move where I went to go take a shower during dinner time and you know, thinking I could leave the door unlocked and not bring my key, not the case. So I returned from the shower, completely locked out of my uh, orientation dorm room. And luckily y'all just happened to be in your room at the time. So hello, <laughs> I am Mary Grace. <laughs> A really intimate start please, for friendship. Please Mary. help. <laughs> y'all gave me clothing. You walked down to the front desk with me so I could get a key. Uh, to get let into my room and we have been friends ever since. So I I have to hand it to the way they set up um, the rooms at orientation because they did it based on the geography of where you're going to be placed within Germany. And so both of you were in the same town of Trier where I was in Koblenz and we were about an hour and 20 minute train right away. And it was great. We got to visit one another at least once a month, if not more often. And it was a little too much fun. (laughs) A little too much fun. A little too much fun. But, um, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, as part of the, uh, the, um, not the interview, but the application process, you know, you had to say that you wanted to go into teaching. And like, for me personally, I had had some teaching experience within my undergraduate. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't that I didn't want to go into teaching when I came back. It just, you know, there were 9 million other things I wanted to do. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. So first off, I would love to have you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. So Alyssa, we're going to start with you. 
Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Um, so I work at a company called CUNA Mutual Group in Madison, Wisconsin. We're an insurance company that primarily works with credit unions. Um, and about two months before the pandemic started, I found myself uh, in a new role um, about how people work. And I had no idea how exciting of a journey that would be. So I have now transitioned um, into a role in our HR space that is supporting hybrid work at our company, trying to create an equitable and inclusive environment, um, no matter where you work. Um, I have a lot of passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion work, especially disability inclusion work. I myself have a disability and so um, have found that to be a really nice door to, to really learning more about, um, about inclusion in our company. Awesome, and we're gonna be diving into some DEI discussions later on awesome. today. Uh, Nicole, can you share with uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am self-employed. I run an independent educational consulting firm um, where I help high school students and their families navigate the college admissions process. And that's kind of been the arena that I've worked within since 2002, um, higher ed and then high school education. Um, I just recently moved to the Tacoma area. So that's why my background is Florida. I don't know if your viewers are going to be able to see our video, but my We're house is audio only still. for this season. <laughs> yes. All right. You can't see the, the tremble behind me. Um, but yeah, just relocated to the Tacoma area. I'm really happy to be back in the Pacific Northwest. And um, in terms of things that I'm passionate about, I've worked a lot within international education as well as college admissions. And then on a personal note, I'm really passionate about supporting people who are working through a cancer diagnosis because um, that hits really close to home. And I think that, you know, we don't on the outside, you don't see the whole perspective of everything that's going on behind the scenes for that family or that individual, um, especially when it comes to financing all the costs associated with medical care um, and just, you know, juggling schedules and negotiating kind of the family component of navigating that diagnosis for other people. So I find myself doing a lot of that just through friend networks. Um, but yeah, those are kind of my areas that I'm passionate about. Love Thanks it. for having me on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of your expertise and experiences um, are going to pair very well with our um, student clips for today. So the group that I've paired you with are two students, Danny and Armand, and we are just going to jump right into our first clip. Hello, listeners. Uh, I'm Danny, and this is... Hi, guys. My name is Armand. Nice to meet you all. Uh, we're both students taking leadership in organizations, and uh, today we're just going to be talking a little bit about some uh, leadership training skills and emotional intelligence and basically how the two interact with one another um, within workplaces and organizations. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about this because the both of us being that we're in our uh, final weeks of college here, um, you know, had a lot to look forward to in the real world as we start moving forward with our career paths. Um, and so talking more about training and leadership and how to really just um, improve your skill set whenever entering the workplace, uh, we both think is really important. Um, so we're going to start just I'll, I'll just start asking you Armand um so when we're talking about formal training in leadership development so now formal training is typically like 
uh, you have like classroom lectures or online training videos, stuff like that. So with formal training and leadership development, so how do you think that this helps in real world scenarios versus like hands-on approaches? That's, <clears throat> what, a, what a question to start with, by the way. I think, I think that's a good question. Formal training is coursework, feel, feedback, and a lot of practice, um, which I believe is, is it's, a, it's a little more important than hands-on training. Because I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm not saying uh, anything at all that hands-on training is a bad way to train people. I feel like it has its benefits to it, but so does formal training as well. Um, I believe formal training can help organizations in understanding, in helping their employees and their newer employees to understand how their organization really works. And, and, uh, I also do believe that Formal training is situational based on what organization it is. So, for example, having having a formal training for um, a sports team, for example, like a soccer team or a basketball team, even um, doing doing like something that's formal training, like coursework or feedback. Yes, it does help. Um, feedbacks obviously helps. However, they need a more hands-on training, so they need to go on the pitch. They need to go on the court to play more and to understand more and to kind of learn and have that muscle memory work in favor for them. So I do believe that formal training does have its perks, but it also does have its cons as well, which is, which is, um, which is there and everything, but learning about the coursework, I believe it's, it's, it's key and it's fundamental for everyone because they should learn the theory first before they can put it in practice in the outside world so that they know what to expect just in case if something else goes wrong. Really interesting response. Yeah, very thorough. And that's, you You bring up a good point about um, learning about that in class. That's one of the things that I, that I think I've enjoyed a little bit more is um, talking with other people and kind of gauging everybody's own, like, you know, opinions on um, what methods maybe should be used. And you were kind of saying, that you think that it should be, do you believe that formal training should take place first then before hands-on approach? Or do you think that it can be uh, a mixed approach? I think, I think in a way you can put it next to each other because um, that kind of gives you, that kind of like helps your mind just uh, think faster and it, and it kind of helps you just kind of have quick responses and find quicker things to do or like quicker um, suggestions to make in the organization but but i think having having to have formal training alongside a hands-on training will definitely help them spread their knowledge about what they're learning and how they want to be and what they want to be all right so this concept of formal training um you know if we we, we jump back to 2006 uh to the aforementioned orientation I don't know if we really received a proper formal training. I think it was more so <laughs> icebreakers and, you know, getting to know one another and, you know, what not to do. <laughs> I would have loved a little more classroom management instruction. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was more, you're going to be fine, go for it. Like kind of, it was very much so on the job training and learning as you go and hoping that, you know, a lot of what we talk about, you know, this leadership versus management that 
who were the English teachers that we were going to be working with in our school? And were there mentors that were going to take us under their wing and kind of help us out? Or are we all on our own? Um, but at the same time, it was nice to have a network of, you know, other folks just like us that it's like, okay, <laughs> for grade <laughs> X, Y, Z, does anyone have a suggestion for a lesson plan? But you know, honestly, I think it was a lot of what I'm doing now as, you know, an adjunct professor is Googling and just trying to come up <laughs> with ideas of, well, what are other people doing? And, you know, the same thing with this podcast project with, you know, the board game project that I gave for my team's class. It's like, well, how'd you come up with it? It's like Google. <laughs> it's all out there. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's all out Thank there. Goodness. On the job. So my, my question for the both of you is, have you ever worked in roles where you have had formal training or has it all been on the job? Cause I, I personally, you know, throughout my career have not really had formal training. It's been, I have this mass amount of skills that apply directly to what I'm going to be doing, but I wasn't necessarily trained to do that specific job. Yeah, absolutely. I could, uh, so can I, first of all, MG, just say, like, Danny and Armand are so lucky to have you as a professor. How cool <laughs> would it be to have MG as a professor, Nicole? Right? Like, really I'm just amazing. super jealous mm-hmm. and wish I would have had you as a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. I did not pay her to say that. that came no, again. she didn't. It would just be so <laughs> Unless fun. Unless prepayment so fun. In, in fun times in Trier, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I think there's some really interesting perspective here. You know, I, I think Armand mentioned... Um, that having a combination of formal training alongside some on-the-job experience would would be desirable. Um, and that, you know, that's where I found training has been the most helpful. So I I was in an MBA program from 2017 to 2020. Um, it was a evening program where everybody in my cohort was working full, full time. And so we were literally putting our coursework into practice the next day at our jobs. Um, so I it, it's it, it was nice to really be able to, to have that. And honestly, I don't, not that I, not that I probably would have had the focus right after college or the, um, you know, desire to go into a full-time MBA program, but I'm really grateful to have put that professional experience first so that I understood more deeply what some of the coursework was talking about mm-hmm. um, in that program. But I mean, I'm with UMG. I, you know, I haven't had it that, I haven't really had any jobs, I don't think, where there was kind of a formal training other than, you know, kind of onboarding um but but not where there was kind of expertise or or, or skill specific things in that industry. Um, so a lot of a lot of my uh, work has also been on the job, learning from others, or you know, being resourceful myself. I think it's because between the three of us, none of us have had you know these engineering, technical, right. yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, computer, IT type work where it would make more sense to have, you know, required formal training for certain things beforehand, whether it's like a safety issue or Mm -hmm. um, just Mm -hmm. needing to know certain technical things ahead of time that I think we're much more um, people job people. People job people. Yeah. People, people, people. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and same, same uh, with you, Nicole, I, I feel like the roles that you've had 
Um, have, have you necessarily had any formal training per se, or has it just been one experience has prepared you for the next? So, I mean, I guess it all comes down to how, like how, how much of a fine tooth comb we want to use here with formal training versus informal training. So I would say that I have had a lot of formal training, um, specifically within my master's of education that was really focused on um, student development administration. So everything from the person who is the dean of students and really is looking at discipline issues or somebody who's in residential life um, to what I tended to focus more on, which was study abroad international education. There was a lot of theory and a lot of um, specific coursework focused on how do you structure those programs to make sure that it's co-curricular and a learning experience for the students outside of the classroom. Because I think that that field um, for a long time has been working towards professionalizing and standardizing what we do to bring more, um, what's the word? Not authority. I'm not thinking of the right word, but like, so what was that? Consistency consistency, but like relevancy as well, because we were in universities and a lot of the, the primary people who were working with students at the universities, they're faculty members, and they've got that credential behind their name. Um, they've earned their PhD, they've earned their master's, they've earned whatever that is. Um, whereas the administrators on the other side who are helping students with everything that happens outside of the classroom, which is still a learning experience because universities are um, training grounds and practice areas for students to get out into the real world. It's kind of that middle ground between um, living at home with your parents and then being out on your own. And we really do see that as a developmental process for students. And so how do we infuse that with theory and be intentional about the programs, the systems, the offices that we're setting up um, there? So my MED definitely was formal training, I would say. Um, even though like there wasn't necessarily a class, it's like, here's how you fill out this form or here's how you, you do whatever <laughs> as an administrator, there were classes about setting up programming. There were classes about um, gathering data and doing studies and creating research projects. And um, how do you get that information and then process it to verify if it's valid or not to then you know, make judgments at a university level about whether or not this is providing the outcomes that you want it to provide. So in that regard, I would say that I have had formal training. And then also from an admissions standpoint, we had, you know, three month formal training program that all of us went through who were new counselors specifically for that job. For um, other jobs that I've had, it was more like on the job training kind of as you go. But what I found with everything that I've done after my master's degree is, you know, the theory that I learned in my master's degree still came with me. The adult learning information still came with me, the presentation, the research, all that stuff. I needed it in my job. I just wasn't being trained to do it on my job because it was assumed that I already had that. Um, so I guess I would say, yeah, I feel like I have had formal training for the yeah, position. This is, I'm, I'm surprised by the answer, but it makes perfect sense the way that you explain it. So mm -hmm. Um, so sorry, that was a really long-winded, I'm a talker, so you can just give me like the, like, shut up, Nicole, you can, no, I, I think it was, a, it was a very thorough answer. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I, I feel like I'm getting like on the job training 
for being a professor as I'm because of the material that I'm teaching. Yeah, you know, this right? concept of leadership in organizations is teaching me so much um, that it's, you know, that's why I got super excited. And I'm like, I want to stick with this and, you know, why I want to apply for a PhD. So for, formal training is coming yeah, <laughs> once, yeah. once I start the PhD program. So it's going to be a lot of work. It's, um, it's interesting because I think of it more as like, tools that you're putting in your tool belt for your job, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not like it's needed. It's, it's just another layer of, of skills that you can bring to, to whatever you're doing, especially with leadership development, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, you can, you can lead sort of (laughs) without without knowing what you're doing. (laughs) But are you effective? No, you're not. But like effective is not a cutoff either. Right. So there's very (laughs) But I like that a tool, a tool in your, in your tool belt of your, your skills. Mm -hmm. Um, Awesome. Excellent answers. All right. We are going to jump into our second clip. So i got a question for you. We are learning about diversity and inclusion and you know how important that is. So for me as a, as an Indian, um, I think diversity and inclusion is a topic that I was very interested in. I've always wanted to know more about it. So what are some methods that could help leaders and organizations include more diversity and, and be more inclusive in their organization? So I think that's a, that's a really good question for a lot of business owners and organizations right now. Um, I think that in the past, uh, the recent like 30, 20, 30 years or so, um, it's more been about just like, having the numbers for diversity, you know, making sure to hire like, um, like a black employee or a female employee, Hispanic. And what a lot of people had come to realize is that you need to actually um, include them. So that's where inclusion comes into play here. And I think that some methods that leaders could be doing now, um, and especially with the social and political climate that we've seen over the past couple of years, I think it's coming more to light that people want to just simply be asked, um, what do you need? What would you like? I think that it's wrong to single out certain employees. For instance, um, if I were an employer, I obviously wouldn't go to a minority in front of everybody and be like, oh, well, what do you, you know, what do you want that's different Mm -hmm. from everybody else? But you kind of want to curate the environment where people aren't afraid to um, ask you for things or tell you, what they need to be successful in that workplace. I think that electing more now with that, though, um, explicitly um, designating more minority uh, individuals or people whose um, backgrounds have a history of being oppressed and maybe not as heard, especially in the workplace, um, electing them to higher positions. So, you know, within the chairman's office or on a board of directors, um, just including those voices because everybody's opinion, you know, everybody's background does eventually, um, it does add to what is felt in the workplace by everybody or in any organization. So hearing people out, um, electing people that have the platform to share their voices and opinions. And I also think that what it takes is for people, you know, 
people like myself who are i'm just a white guy um people willing to step down um you know and and being white too and in a workplace um i do feel that there might be you know that i obviously have privilege and um in my own workplace sometimes i can even kind of see that with my own management so people that are willing to step down and acknowledge that privilege and you know take the second seat and say listen you got this and i will be here to support you um i think that's what it really all comes down to and with emotional <laughs> intelligence in that i think that it's important for leaders um you know regardless of the type of leader i think it's important for people to be willing to learn about new cultures backgrounds different needs of different people um and not just keeping every every single employee on you know one straight ideal track because not everybody has the same goals in mind i love what danny has to say you know acknowledging his own privilege as as a white male um and you know what i teach my students when it when it comes to di you know i'm clearly no expert um but i i, I firm believer that it's about infusing um inclusion into the culture of the company and ensuring that when you're hiring a diverse staff that everyone feels like they have a seat at the table because that's you know one of the biggest problems are you know these performative actions and you know that's what kind of Danny kicks off with is saying you know it used to be that numbers game and like we have to hire x amount of x amount of this and that's not doing anyone any good so I you know would love to hear any sort of personal experiences that you have you know maybe who's got it right who's got it wrong um, Alyssa, I'm sure you have a lot to say about it. <laughs> I do. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, the first thing that I would say is, like I said before, you know, DEI is a, an area that's incredibly important to me. Um, I think it's, there's so much to talk about here, right? So like any, anyone going into the professional world, especially people who uh, want to be leaders, like you, you need to to be on this journey um, continually and, and learning about um, inclusion and equity and um, and how to manage diversity in, in your organization. Um, and uh, so I'm lucky to be at a company right now that I think is doing a great job of continuous improvement in this area. Um, or maybe I shouldn't say lucky, I guess, you know, like I choose where I work. <laughs> That's one of the reasons <laughs> that I work here. I didn't just like land here. Um, but uh, it, 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 it's been really neat to see and, and be a part of. Um, I mentioned I'm pretty involved with disability inclusion work. Um, I have muscular dystrophy. I'm a wheelchair user. And um, as communities of uh, people with disabilities started becoming more important in my personal life, I started a, an employee resource group um, for disability inclusion at my company. So I've had a lot of great conversations around these topics, both with my colleagues here and throughout my professional network in, um, in different companies. Um, I, I love that Danny um, calls out here the the delicate balance between hearing voices from marginalized groups, but not singling them out to speak for their demographic or yes, for their group or community. Absolutely. That's huge. Um, one of the things that kind of in, in that vein that I see um, companies, you know, not, not really hitting the mark on this with um, is acting like it's a privilege for people from marginalized groups to be participating in inclusion efforts. Mm. Um, like this is, 
like it's an extra perk or something for them. Like it's a benefit um, instead of understanding the incredible value and contribution of the company and, and recognizing that uh, that value and that you're asking these folks to do more work, work that, that sometimes they're willing to do for free because they're passionate about it. Um, but if, if you're really looking at an equitable environment, you know, a lot of times people in, in marginalized groups are already facing more challenges at work because of bias or socioeconomic status, and then do, doing even more work to create this culture of inclusion that, that research shows benefits the company's bottom line. So I, I think it's a, a real miss for companies to, um, to not recognize the incredible value that brings. Um, I definitely have heard some companies talking about it, like you get to participate in this work. And, and that's great. And it does draw a lot of people, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a benefit. It's an opportunity um, to add value to the company. I, I think a lot of companies have woken up to this and then either are ensuring that people are, are paid for that extra work or use it as opportunities for advancement within their organization, which I think is awesome to, you know, if you're promoting a leader, you need to see that they've done pretty extensive work in the DEI area. Um, and I'd say the biggest thing that, that I've seen working in creating an inclusive environment is really a culture of, of vulnerability and openness to feedback. Um, I, you know, personally have been really impressed with leaders at every level of my company over the last few years and being willing to listen, to apologize when harm's been done, um, and truly commit to learning to do better next time. So it's a, it's a journey, you know, you don't ever like arrive. <laughs> You're never well like, yeah, I've, absolutely. I've done DEI. I'm, I'm finished. So. <laughs> Nicole, absolutely. did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I feel like I've been removed from the world of working in organizations for a number of years. Um, so I don't have tons to add, but I do completely agree. I made a little note of this, that it is a continuous journey. And so like to think that, oh, you know, we've done these things or we have training, you know, inter intercessions or we have a diversity office or we have a diversity officer or this person's doing these things and therefore I as a leader or our organization doesn't need to do more, I think is really naive or kind of old fashioned in, in the thinking, right? Checking the box and moving on. Um, I do wish that culturally as a society, we valued DEI more and just seeing all the different ways that diversity and equity affects all of us. I think that we have a long way to go um, just kind of culturally a big picture nationally to see and realize that value and how we all bring diversity to the table, even if, you know, we have majority positions in one way, like I'm white, that's my privilege, but I'm a woman. And so that's, you know, not a privilege. So what's the intersectionality of all of that? Um, I, I do want that to be more widely accepted. I hope we can get there, but I do think that until workplaces are infusing that more and people become more open to it and not seeing it as a threat, um, that, you know, we may just still struggle with, um, with seeing things as a value and really seeing how we as an individual fit into the larger whole. And I think it's really generational. I think that, you know, kind of looking as a whole that like the older generation is there like moving on and retiring, um, and then getting to, talk to and hear from, you know, these Gen Zers that they are really 
changing the narrative and they are refusing to show up in these workspaces that aren't inclusive, that aren't, um, that, that don't align with their values and they're, they're making these conscious decisions. And so I think we're just going to continue to see this shift, which makes me very excited. Yeah, I have to say, I I think you're probably right, but I do have to call out that, like, I know some people from older generations who are retired who are just like awesome in this area. Right. So (laughs) it's not, I don't want to forget them. Yes, yes, there are definitely, there were a lot of people ahead of us who have been fighting for change for way too long. And, um, you know, it's just unfortunate that the fight just like our learning is no, it's just never going to stop. It'll, it'll, it's going to be a continuous lifelong journey for sure. Awesome. All right. We are going to jump into our next clip. Wow, man, you really hit like some great, absolutely great points. (laughs) Like I really like the way, like, I really liked, I, I love the idea of like how you said, giving someone who's not, who doesn't have like a voice that much in an organization, giving them a higher position so that their voice can actually be heard and their their ideas might bring something new to the table. I think that's very interesting. And that's, that's something that, and also another point that you raised was uh, how like asking, not asking, but kind of understanding the need to step down to kind of take the direction of your organization, of your company, in another in another branch in another way i really think those are like really good points and i, I definitely love like all the points that you said so, so that was amazing man. good stuff good stuff awesome. thanks glad to hear it if you were to see um like a if you were to see a training development model that was actually structured that could be you know played across many different fields throughout different industries organizations um how would you like to see that structured if you think that there should even be a structured um, method of leadership training? Uh, do you think that it could have a variety of forms? Like how could we ensure that leaders across the board are acting appropriately and in the best interests of their followers? I thought this was such a fascinating question that he posed because, you know, think about how many different leadership books have been written over the last who knows how long and um you know so i'm gonna pose this question to the two of you you know what are your thoughts on this concept of you know one kind of end-all be-all leadership training that could be used across multiple disciplines you know what what are your thoughts on that Mm. so for me i think the biggest challenge with having a a set format or a set thing that you that's the best to follow is timing right we all enter into our leadership positions with different different experiences coming behind us and i can only really speak to my own experience but my formal training on leadership theory um, and practice and changing organizations and kind of organizational structures and stuff happened 10 years before I ever got into a leadership position. And by the time I got into that leadership position, I had all those books and had the theories, but dang it, if it had all left my nugget at that point. (laughs) Um, And so then, you know, I, I found that I was doing a lot of listening and trying to figure things out by meeting with people and trying to get the pulse of the organization. Um, And so I didn't have that formalized training that I was able to apply then and there. And I didn't have that peer group or that mentorship where I could 
ask questions and get outside opinions about how to handle different dynamics that we were seeing um, in the office and then in the organization as a whole. Um, so uh, I think idealistically, I think leadership training should be both formal and informal at the same time. But how do you, how do you time that? I think it's maybe just impossible to have that perfect leadership program. Hopefully I'm not shooting the premise of one of your classes in the foot. <laughs> um. I, I mean, I could, I could speak to the fact um, when I was teaching my team processes class this last semester, uh, the textbook references the leadership challenge. And this mm-hmm. was a book that I took the course uh, when I was in grad school and it was, it was essentially the way it was set up was basically like a weekend leadership retreat. Mm-hmm. And I loved that class so much. I went back and read um, the paper that I had written because um, it was like a massive final paper connecting all the dots. And I ended up presenting my paper to the class to like, let them know kind of like not a whole lot has changed about how I approached that paper and all the different steps to like being the ultimate leader. Um, however, you know, I wouldn't call that book perfect. Like it was an ex- excellent exercise in at that time, um, you know, but it was written what, 10, 15 years ago plus. At least. Yeah. I have that and one so, too. Um, you know, how much has changed. And I think that it's, you know, I, you know, I'm teaching these students about leadership and organizations, but at the same time, things are just going to constantly change. And so if I end up having to teach this course, you know, 10 years from now, I guarantee you it's going to be a completely different book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah. I don't know, Alyssa, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, um, I, I love everything that, that you all are saying. I think it just goes back to that issue of continuous learning, right? So you, you really can't stop learning. Um, cultural context is going to change. You know, the speed of business is going to change. There's so many things that, that just change that like you can't really lean on just your formal learning that you had like 20 years ago forever, right? It can be the foundation of, of your own leadership style potentially. Um, but I, you know, I've found continuously throughout my career that um, it's been incredibly helpful to, you know, stay up to like, keep reading, <laughs> just like read stuff, like talk to people, learn, you know, I, um, I, I like to stay tuned into, you know, business articles and, and um, the newest in, in leadership training. I can't say that I'm as, as smart as your students about like defining the leadership styles and things like that. But, um, but there's a lot that you can get just by kind of paying attention and being open to learning. I mean, I think that there's some pretty universal skills, like I said, for leaders across the board, regardless of your industry or discipline. Um, so, and, and I've seen, you know, at my company and even leaders um, throughout my professional network really do a total 180 on the area that they work in. So I think, yeah, 100%, there's, there's skills that are important for leaders across the board, um, but that's going to keep, keep changing, right? Because the world keeps changing. And so you, you can't just lean only on, you know, the one book that you read at the beginning of your career. <laughs> Well, now I'm curious to see how Armand responds to this question. And I think this might be a little controversial, but I think using a different approach, like 
using all of the training developments in development models that we've learned so far and like that we might learn in the future if we use all that and jumble it up and kind of search which situation like serves the best model i think that that is the best way to go about that and the reason being um the reason as i would suggest is because leaders can choose what type of leader they want to be when they get put into those kind of situations so if they know everything about if they know all the development models and all the training methods to ensure that they, that they understand it i feel like them choosing their style defines what type of leader they want to be in the future so i think having an abundant option of choosing between their styles like we have authoritative or counselor or anything like that i think i think that's very um i think having that different approach to using all of them in a different situation is very important and to ensure that they act in the best interest like yeah maybe certain structured ones but in a variety of forms that's really great exactly like the 360 feedback or mm-hmm. or like one of the other training methods that are our coaching even i think that's very important and knowing those methods and knowing when to use them and when to be emotionally intelligent and how to understand and when to i like how to understand your employees i think that's very that proves that that leader is is he know he or she knows their stuff so i think that's very important well, i think we're really we're really digging into a lot of the a lot of the different aspects that we've learned in this class through like discussion boards <laughs> actually with the discussion boards too real quick i wanted to bring up i was thinking about how um even though we really we really don't respond to each other on the discussion board mm-hmm. class but since we have it in person i think it's really nice to see that like whenever we all sh- are sharing our different responses uh, we can kind of if you want like you can kind of like keep it, keep others responses in your mind maybe like oh well like i know what other people might want to get out of this class or what they're dealing with mm-hmm. and that kind of plays into emotional intelligence in itself because we're all really just getting to learn how to interact with one another i mean exactly know, yeah we've been doing it for so long but especially after covid i think a lot of us are learning how to yeah how to start over again i think that's what and like with the discussions like i think i think it's kind of fun at times just to, even though you're right we don't reply to each other i think it's kind of fun to just read what everyone else is replying to and like i kind of like it So to give our listeners a little bit of backstory um w- w- when they're speaking about the discussions every week in order to encourage my students to actually do the reading and think about the reading so that way they show up prepared for class um I would ask them to um just share their thoughts like anything you found interesting something that stuck out to you and so you know the responses were always varied <laughs> but <laughs> it was helpful for me to be able to take some of their thoughts and incorporate that into the lesson to say you know here cuz you know i have no i i would be surprised if students were actually reading one another's responses which they're totally welcome to do so but um you know that's why i appreciated being able to share some of their thoughts that i thought were really profound with the class and you know i wouldn't attach their name to it i would just say like here's what your fellow students said and you know specifically when it came to you know the diversity and inclusion lesson that the you know because i have a very diverse um 
class that, you know, the feedback was great and getting to, you know, kind of be inside the minds. And it, I think it helped make them feel a little bit more comfortable as well, speaking out in class. Um, and I tried to create a culture where they could show up and be vulnerable and speak their mind and not worry about, you know, saying the wrong thing. And I, I, the students really showed up very bravely in class and I really appreciated them for it. So, um, I was glad I had some time to kind of reacclimate to society before diving into teaching. Um, it was a pretty difficult, you know, I only did indoor dining for the first time, you know, after I was vaccinated. So that was, you know, 14 months of, of not eating inside. And, um, you know, I know that the two of you have had to be super careful for various reasons. So, you know, what has it been like, you know, trying to reconnect with people. Like I've been very grateful that the three of us were already communicating virtually mm -hmm. since, since we dis dispersed in 2007. Yep. So mm -hmm. Skype bar, Skype bar. We went from Skype to, uh, to <laughs> zoom. Um, and so, you know, what has it been a struggle? Has it been, you know, what, what has it been like kind of reacclimating yourself to being a sociable person again? <laughs> you mean not being a Krabby Patty all the time? Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> uh, so I think I'm still working on it. So for, sure. um, for your readers, a little bit more info. Um, I just had uh, cancer treatment all of last year, which made me immunocompromised kind of in the height of the pandemic. And I lived in a state where they dropped the masking requirement really early um, and kind of went, uh, hey, wild, wild west, everybody can do what everybody wants to do. Uh, so I locked myself down um, and was very much talking to people uh, on the phone via Zoom, text message, and saw very few people in person. Um, so for me, I can honestly say I'm still working on getting back into it, but I really enjoy being with people. Um, and I enjoy going out and doing things with people. So I'm, I'm trying to gain all that lost time. But for me, I am finding that it's more fruitful for me to be intentional and spend time with people in small groups or one-on-one so that I can catch up with them um, more intensively, if that makes sense. And like then trying to, to Philly, it was like no time had passed. So like, I, I feel like you didn't even skip a beat. Um, uh, when you came to visit, it was, it was just like old time. So maybe it's, I think it's, you, I think you're doing very well. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. There's definitely um, that like social anxiety, right? I, I have that too, where like, I'm, I'm an extrovert. I, I, I always have been, but, but have like a, a streak of shyness that used to visit me, especially when I was younger. And those feelings just came flooding back. Like after we started seeing people in person again, where I'm just like, oh, this is, exhausting to like <laughs> it is. you it's like think you're being super awkward and people are yep. like no you're, you're pretty normal like you're just being you but <laughs> <laughs> oh oh yes so true but yeah I, I mean I appreciated the um you know I actually developed a lot of important relationships during the pandemic like I said I changed jobs like two months before it started and and some of that um 
was because the people I worked with were pretty deeply committed to like taking a few minutes before a meeting to just like connect socially. Um, I think that's so important mm-hmm. and not every group does it. Um, it. It really builds a lot of just camaraderie and trust. And, um, but, you know, I, I did, I, I have in my job right now, kind of part of what we're trying to give some guidance on is how do you connect across locations like that? Um, kudos to you, MG, in your class for um, kind of doing that asynchronous communication first. That's that's like one of my favorite terms this year is asynchronous communication. So uh, making folks like kind of think and write out their thoughts ahead of time um, and then having a discussion about it. I think there's been a lot of good that's come from that kind of communication, because in, you know, even in a conversation on a virtual meeting or in person, there's some people whose voices just don't get heard. You know, there's dynamics in the room that, um, that give some people more space than others. So having the chance to write that out, like there have been a lot of issues that I've gone to like our team's chat for and just, you know, ask for people's thoughts on, or we've actually had discussion there and it's more effective than actually having a conversation, which I think surprised me um, that, you know, we can use those different forms of communication to get um, to get more done in a shorter amount of time and less stress for a lot of people in some cases. You have no idea how much reassurance you just gave me because um, I am currently working on the asynchronous portion of my team processes class. So my leadership class only meets once a week um, in person. And then last semester, my team processes class, we met two days a week for an hour and 20 minutes. And mm-hmm. I was informed that for this upcoming fall semester, it was going to be hybrid. So we'll still meet in person on Thursdays. However, the other portion is going to be taught asynchronously. So for our listeners, that means, um, I'm, I'm essentially responsible for putting in an assignment or, you know, I put together a presentation and then they are able to do this in their own time. So I'll always set a a due date, which will likely be like the, either the day before class or like the time class starts. So that way they're at least preparing before they come to class in person on Thursday. Um, and it's been in, an intense exercise for me to try and figure out like, how am I going to do this effectively? Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, again, Google it, yeah, <laughs> found some great websites and, you know, took it to my entrepreneur group this past week and got some really good insights. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, thank you for kind of reassuring me because again, as an extrovert, having that, you know, not in-person situation, it's a good reminder that not everybody wants to be in person all the time. And so I am glad that at least it's not synchronous, meaning meaning that if it would have been synchronous, that meant at that same time on Tuesday, we're showing up on a Zoom call together. And Mm -hmm. I know that students definitely don't want any more Zoom classes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it can be exhausting. They were over it. That's Mm -hmm. real world skills for sure. I mean, I don't know how close either of you are to it because I know that that you're not kind of in the the corporate world, but so many people at companies 
you know, a huge complaint is just like the number of meetings you have, like your days are jam packed (laughs) with meetings. Mm -hmm. And, and there's so many of them that could be like a a quick chat Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and you could do this asynchronously, but we're kind of stuck in this realm of like, well, I used to just pop over to someone's cube and, and, and ask them this question. So I better set up a meeting with them because mm-hmm. I need to talk to them. It's like, you don't, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily. So I think that yeah. there's a level of like comfort if you're an introvert mm-hmm. or, or have trouble speaking up in meetings uh, mm-hmm. or just take longer to process. But there's also that level of efficiency that's just like, I love people and I want to see them all the time. And I don't want to have eight hours back to back of meetings like right. sure. every day. Right. Yeah. Well, and before we leave this topic, kind of circling a little back to what we were talking about in terms of how people process information. And let's say you just touched on it again, whether you're like, you take longer to process info or maybe your uh, written verbal, like, right. Like different learning styles, audio, visual, verbal, those kinds of things. So by allowing asynchronous conversation or decisions or meetings that don't necessarily need to be done in person, uh, you're allowing people to process in the way that is most optimal for themselves. And I would like to think that then as a leader, that means you're getting the best out of your, your folks. Um, but I do also think that um, because of that culture of meetings that we very much fall within, you can end up just hearing from the same people all the time. So then the people who bring diversity or other perspectives to the table, um, they may be at the table, but you're not hearing from them and you know why they choose not to speak up multiple reasons, of course, all of them valid, but, um, by offering those different levels or methods of communication, I think you open yourself up to, um, maybe being, you're being more vulnerable in that regard and more approachable and therefore hearing from more people, hopefully. And I'm, I'm excited to see how this goes. Cause I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I went from only had about, you know, 15 students in my team's class last semester, and now I have 32. So it's a huge difference. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that, you know, I, I, I'm excited to report back at the end of the semester to see how it goes, because this is, again, more reassurance of making me feel better um, of how I'm approaching it. So thank you. Thank you both as always for your, your stage wisdom. Um, send us right into the next clip. In like an ever-changing environment and where so many workplaces are diversifying their services and their fields of what they're doing, how do you think that leaders of the future can best prepare to have to deal with um, situational leadership? <laughs> well, um, I, that was a good question, by the way. Uh, so I think I think situational leadership is one of the toughest styles to actually learn and grasp about, just because it's as you said it's always so ever changing. Um, to adapt to it, it's actually uh, it's 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 a, it's a hard task to adapt to that kind of a situation. So having to adapt means the leader has to have either the experience or the knowledge um, to have been in those situations. So I think for someone to be like a leader, to be a situation leader, especially, they need to know, like, they need to know the emotional intelligence to understand what exactly is going on in the situation that they're in and how they can deal with it, responding to other people's emotions that are in that situation as well. 
to having to approach that situation and keeping in mind that there are other people as well and you know they have their feelings and their thoughts so just keeping in, keeping that in mind having to switch around every time is just it it's it gets confusing kind of tedious at times because you don't know who you're talking to or like you don't know who you're really kind of communicating to because because of how how many situations you've been through in a day in the organization so switching from being like let's say an authoritative figure to being a peer or to being a counselor requires a lot of understanding of the employees that you're working with and how they're feeling in every situation so not only do you have to actually be friendly towards them you have to actually show a little vulnerable side to them i i think about humanizing leaders a little bit more i think that's what this class is kind of mm-hmm. showing us is that while we're improving leadership skills we're also proving to each other that not all leaders are just you know authoritarian yeah, and exactly dictators so how does how does emotional intelligence tie in with a leader's vision um so let's just say someone who's emotionally intelligent but lacks a strong clear vision or someone who has a strong vision but lacks the emotional intelligence who would you want to work with what an excellent question he poses i you know for me i th- i think it, it it depends on the nature of the job the company the role you know what am i showing up um to do and so for me i'll take emotional intelligence over vision any day but at the same time it it has to be incredibly frustrating without a vision like what are we working towards um so i i definitely anybody i work for in the future would love for them to to be very self aware and be able to manage their emotions because i have had negative experiences in the past <laughs> <laughs> um and just you know I, i'll probably mention this on every single episode that i do this season but i was not familiar with the concept of emotional intelligence until teaching it in both of these classes that i just didn't i was a very self-aware person i am a very self-aware person i you know have learned to manage my emotions over the years but i just you know just didn't know that there was some sort of majestic t- overarching term um so you know what what are what are your thoughts and uh, and opinions about emotional intelligence versus vision in in a leader i'm i'm with you mg i'm definitely i you know but one thing i'll say is like some self awareness is just vital no matter what i've also um been in positions where i was very passionate about the mission and the vision but the leadership made it nearly impossible to work there so um you know it, not only does it just like totally tear down your your mental health and and wellness but you don't actually work effectively either so so absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i i totally agree um with the perspectives that both Alyssa and then um you know the question that Danny's putting forward what would you rather or sorry not Danny um but who would you rather work with right um yeah. i i would go with high emotional intelligence anytime um because i think that vision can be developed and oftentimes vision when it's developed with others um 
now you've got more buy-in. So it's easier to motivate the team to move forward and actually to get traction on what you're trying to accomplish as opposed to somebody who has vision, but no emotional intelligence or um, limited emotional intelligence and doesn't know how to self-regulate how they're feeling about the situation um, can either move your organization backwards or it just leaves you kind of spinning your wheels because now you're trying to get through um, personal issues between personnel, as opposed to like the issues that your organization is actually trying to tackle. Um, Absolutely. So I, yeah, I would rather work with somebody who's emotionally intelligent than has vision. Cause I think vision also develops over time and changes over time. Um, totally Cause the organizations are living things. Yeah. Um, so if you're sticking with a vision that's outdated or doesn't fit the needs of the consumers or people you're trying to serve, then that also um, now you're working backwards or you're working against your own best interests. That's a great point. I, I think it can be really different for, for different people, kind of depending on how committed they are to the purpose of their organization though, too. And I, I mean, vision can mean a number of different things in this context, I think, but um, you know, I, <laughs> I think about this sometimes in my leadership journey, you know, where with me, myself as a leader, um, there was a point in my career where, for a lot of good reasons, I found myself in a, a leadership role in the high-end fashion industry. Um, I managed a customer service team and, you know, I think I, I did a good job in the role, um, but a lot of the folks on my team were, were working there um, because they had deep passion in the industry. Um, you know, Nicole and MG, you know that I don't have a passion for fashion. I buy all my clothes <laughs> from Goodwill. You're still very passionate. I am, you got that uh, bohemian look. You match. Yeah, high-end retail is not found at Goodwill, it turns out. So um, no one would ever mistake me for someone who cares about, about fashion. Um, very connected I, to like Annie from Devil Wears Prada when she first yes, started. Yes. Right, right. It's, exactly. It's just That's like what that. I think of. But there was, you know, in that situation, there was a limit to how much I could care about the purpose of the company, honestly. Um, You know, I could care about my team and foster enthusiasm for their careers. But when when I wasn't like kind of aligned at that high level of what we were trying to do, um, I, I found eventually it was hard for me to be a leader. That doesn't mean that it'd be true for everybody. I think people would find things that they're passionate about in the role. But um, for me, you know, I'm, I'm happy now to be working in a role where like I, I deeply align with the purpose of our company. And, um, and I think it would be hard at this point in my career to go, go back to, um, to trying to be a leader in an area where like, I didn't really care about the vision. (laughs) For sure. Mm -hmm. Well, let's see what, uh, Danny had to say about it. That's a really interesting question. So who would I want to work with based on that? I would think that as a follower, it it depends on the type of workplace that I'm in. For instance, let's say I'm at my current job, which is just at a grocery store in Center City. Quite frankly, I I couldn't give a damn about the the future of that company or what happens. Um, So I think that I would be more in tune with a leader who cares about emotional intelligence versus vision because vision kind of, while it definitely includes all the followers and employees, it is more so about the organization or company and where that is to be in the future. Um, You know, not that I want anything bad to happen, but if I were in like for my future career, you know, um, like I hope to work in community development um, 
And I think that in that case, I would definitely care more about working with someone who is vision oriented. Um, but with being vision oriented, I do think that you have to obviously take emotional, you, you need to have both. You need to take emotional intelligence into consideration because if you have this vision and you're just trying and trying for this vision as a leader, trying to create something, but you don't have the committed follower base and you don't have people who are willing to work with you to achieve that vision and those goals, um, it's just going to be a mess. And like you were kind of saying earlier, whenever you have a leader who is very focused on, you know, one thing or just like what they want, being selfish, essentially, um, or like being a dictator, authoritarian, um, your, your follower base is definitely going to fall apart and you're, you're not going to be able to keep anyone around long enough to see anything good come. What a great answer. I mean, it, it seems like he's completely aligned with, with what we were saying. And, you know, Alyssa, I jotted down a little note that it sounds like with Danny's current position of kind of like that, you know, part-time job during college that he would rather work for someone emotional intelligent because he's not invested in the company. So similar yeah. to what you were saying um, in, in the fashion industry versus, um, you know, a career that he's working in. So I, he obviously has not worked for someone who has no emotional intelligence yet to, <laughs> <laughs> to not speak to. I'm sure the, he'll have his turn. We all do. Well, mm, we he all will do definitely that. have his turn. So, you know, that first job out of college is never easy, but um, you know, did you, did you have any other thoughts, um, on, on that discussion? I had a thought pop into my head um, specifically around like not connecting with the overall vision of the organization, like fashion that you might work for. I feel like, you know, employees all come to a job for multiple reasons where, whether it's as simple as earning an income, um, all the way up to wanting to make a change in the world and really feeling aligned with a vision or having a passion for something like fashion. Um, and so that's why kind of circling back to earlier parts of the conversation where we were talking about getting to know people, understanding who you're working with and kind of why they're there. Um, if you know that about your employees and care enough to learn about that deeply, then you understand what their motivations are. And then you can use your emotional intelligence to make them feel vested in what they're doing, even if they don't really feel um, passionate about what the latest Milano Blonic uh, <laughs> leopard print kitten heels look like. Um, Nicole also has a passion for fashion. No, no, but I do have a pair of Milano Blonic kitten heels in my closet. I, I will totally fess up to that. Um, but yeah, no. So like, I think that you, you can succeed and do very well at a job and at a position, um, even if you're not completely, you know, ate up by the the vision of the organization. But I think in that instance, what really makes the difference is, do you feel cared for? Do you feel like you care about what's happening daily? And if you had a bad interaction uh, with a customer or something, do you feel like your higher ups would be able to empathize or at least understand why that's frustrating to you? Or if you have something happen to you, um, outside of work personally, do you feel like the company would care for you and, you know, understand what you're going through as you're navigating that process? Um, because then I think people feel valued and they're more likely to stay and give their all and also give extra time or go the extra mile in situations where you're leaning on them to do more than just what's required of them. Sorry, that was it's a like long-winded answer. No, I think that was a 100%. great answer. And yeah. the, you know, kind of goes back to what 
Danny was saying about humanizing um, Mm -hmm. leadership. And so that humanization has to be a two-way street that the leader and the employees all, you know, need to treat each other with mutual respect and empathy and, um, you know, leading with vulnerability. So understanding that just like you were saying that things are going to go on outside of work and, as an employee, like being able to manage that both ways, like being, you know, kind of open and honest about, you know, to a point of like what you're going through, but at the same time, you know, feeling the support. um, It's, I just, I really hope that community or that company culture continues to grow in this way. And um, our, our world continues to shift in this direction because, you know, this is why I want to study toxic workplace culture for (laughs) my first research topic. (laughs) Got to dismantle it from, from the inside out. Much needed. Well, I cannot thank the two of you enough for joining me today. This was an absolutely wonderful conversation. And, you know, I'm really glad that I was able to, to pair you with Danny and Armand. So a big thank you uh, to the two of them. And lastly, we thank our, they're wonderful. And lastly, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Check out Beyond the Venue podcast on Instagram and check out all of season one and two, as well as season three, streaming on all your favorite podcast platforms. Enjoy the rest of your day. This is a Bivesta production.